One fact I think is really interesting is that this is the first year ever where investments in clean energy will outpace investments in fossil fuels. The estimates are for $1.7 trillion in investments in renewable energy for 2023. And then that's almost double the CapEx number of $1 trillion for fossil fuel CapEx in 2023. So this has never happened before. So this is garnering a lot of interest. Hello and welcome to Signals by AlphaSense, where we hear thoughtful insights from business leaders, investors, and experts. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Signals by AlphaSense, and I'm your host, Nick Mazing. Today, we welcome Xavier Smith, Director of Research, Energy and Industrials at Stream, AlphaSense's expert insights solution. If you're not familiar with it, the solution covers a wide range of expert insight services, including an extensive expert interview transcript library integrated with all of the other document sets that one would need, like broker research, filings, transcripts, news, and so on, inside of the AlphaSense platform, alongside co-services, monthly sector newsletters, webinars, and more. Today, we're going to cover trends in industrials, such as EV adoption, energy transition, EV charging, along with how interest rates are influencing the construction cycle. Xavier, welcome. And can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your work? Hello, everyone. I'm Xavier Smith. Nick, thanks for having me. Everyone else, thanks for giving me your time today. So I joined AlphaSense a couple of months ago. I'm director of research for industrials and energy at AlphaSense. And basically, I'm just in charge of content generation at the firm. So trying to create lots of inter interesting and engaging content for our clients. Before I was at AlphaSense, I spent a lot of time on the buy side at numerous hedge funds and long-only firms, both in New York and London. So thanks for having me today. So let's start with kind of the big picture questions. What are the most exciting developments in industries, which is a very broad area currently? Yeah, sure. You know, Nick, I, I tend to look at energy and industrials through the lens of two different categories. One category is the traditional uh, side of industrials, which is what most people think of when they think of industrials. So more the traditional industries of manufacturing, aerospace and defense, materials, sectors like that. And then the other category of industrials is the new and more emerging side of industrials. These sectors are more tech adjacent. Uh, so this includes EVs, energy storage, renewable energy, these types of sectors. If you were to look at what's going on in both of these spaces, I guess both sides, both the emerging adjacent side of industrials and the traditional side of industrials have some interesting trends uh, that are going on. In the tech adjacent side, you've got EV adoption, which is increasing year by year. Uh, in the U.S., we're currently at around 7% of new car sales are EVs. That lags Europe, which is around 15%, and that lags China, which is even higher. I think they're over 20% or 30%, something like that. And so, you know, that is one of the categories that is attracting a lot of attention and a lot of investor focus. If you look within the EV space, it also breaks out into two categories. Uh, so you've got the, the new firms, the upstarts, the pure plays. So these are firms like Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Lordstown. And then you've got the legacy OEMs, which are playing a bit of a catch up here. 
So these are your Volkswagens, your Ford, your Mercedes. And so basically the news flow is, will the legacy OEMs be able to catch up with what Tesla has done in the space? And then also will some of the upstarts like Rivian and Lucid, Lordstown has gone bankrupt, so <laughs> they don't count, but will they also be able to, to match what, what, what Tesla's done? So, you know, that's garnering a lot of attention. The other thing that's going on in the tech adjacent side of industrials is just clean energy. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the adoption of renewable energy. And it's interesting. I've been covering industrials since about 2000. And back during that time frame, the 2000, 2005 time frame, industrials required government subsidies in order to make sense or in order to pencil as a project that any utility or any household would, would take out. But now these days, because they've gotten so efficient and their productivity gains have been so great, these technologies no longer require government subsidies in order to, to pencil out and, and be effective. However, we still do have government subsidies in the space. And so it's just investors are, are just watching how fast the take up is for renewable energy. One fact I think is really interesting is that this is the first year ever where investments in clean energy will outpace investments in fossil fuels. The estimates are for $1.7 trillion in investments in renewable energy for 2023. And then that's almost double the CapEx number of $1 trillion for fossil fuel CapEx in 2023. So this has never happened before. So this is garnering a lot of interest. And then if you look at just the growth rates, you know, clean energy spending is expected to grow 24% in 2023. And that's greater than the 15% the growth that we're seeing in fossil fuels. Uh, if I were to switch over to old industrials, I would say the, the fact that is most interesting to followers and participants in the space right now is just uh, interest rate cycle and what that's doing to construction. And it's very interesting because right now we're seeing a bifurcated market. Uh, on the residential side, you're actually seeing despite the fact that interest rates are at 7% for most new mortgages today, home builders are doing pretty well. And that's just due to the fact that it's pretty hard to, to buy an existing house because most residents don't want to move because they have a cheap mortgage. Uh, so the, the new home builders are actually doing well despite the fact that interest rates are really high. Then you contrast that over to the commercial side and you see a lot of plight going on in the commercial real estate sector, especially with what you're seeing with office space. So it's a bit of a bifurcated market and, and people are watching that space as well. Mm -hmm. So let's start digging into these areas a little bit more in detail. Let's talk about EVs first. So why do you think EV penetration in the U.S. fell in Q2 to around 7.5% versus 8% earlier in the year? And it looks like used EV pricing is dropping by about 30% in June. There is all headlines about price cuts from the OEMs for new EVs. Do you think customers are losing excitement about the technology? Right. That's a, a great question. I, I think there are a couple of issues going on in the EV market in particular, and then the auto market more broadly. First of all, interest rates are high, you know, as we've discussed earlier, 
And that's having an, an effect, a negative effect on the entire auto market. So it's not just EVs, it's all cars. All cars are becoming less expensive to consumers. So that's an issue. The other factor is that a lot of the OEMs, especially the, the legacy OEMs, are having problems with sourcing battery components. They're having, they're having issues with ramping up battery production capacity. And so the availability of getting an EV has actually been quite difficult. If you were to look maybe six months ago, uh, if you were to go on Ford's website and you wanted to order yourself a, a brand new Mach-E, it was a pretty difficult process. You, you would go on, it would tell you that they're not taking new orders until six months from now, 12 months from now. This is the same issue if you went on Cadillac's website, you tried to order yourself their new luxury uh, EV, the SUV called the Lyric. They closed orders for, for new customers for this a couple of days after launching it. And so there were lots of fits and starts from the consumer side in terms of if you actually want to order an EV, it was actually difficult to complete process. Now, the uh, legacy OEMs have, have finally uh, gotten their acts together somewhat, and you can actually go on these websites and start to place orders for cars. So I think there's it's been an issue of availability, production scale in terms of legacy OEMs. These cars cost more just because of where interest rates are. And then the fact of the pricing falling 30% or so, you know, I would say that that's just a return to normal. The pricing of used cars got pretty crazy during COVID. You probably remember just how hard it was to get a new car or a used car back during those days. Used car prices went crazy. Firms like Carbana benefited extensively from that. And then now we're just kind of uh, fading back to a normal car pricing cycle. So. Mm -hmm. so staying with EVs and when we look forward, so how long do you think the US EV penetration will take to match Europe's of around 50% or China's, which you mentioned, just mentioned is, is even higher? Yeah, sure. If I had to throw a date on that, I would say probably around 20, 25 or so. And where I get that number from is that is the time when most analysts think that EV pricing will match the pricing of an internal combustion engine car spec for spec, like for like. Right now, EVs still carry a price premium to their ICE counterparts, but as battery technology improves, as OEMs ramp their production, pricing will fall on EVs. And then by the time we get to 2025, most analysts are expecting that EVs will, will match ICE vehicles in terms of their, their price versus quality. And then I think once you see that, you'll start to see much faster adoption in the U.S. for EVs versus what you're seeing today. And so then I think we'll be at a point where the U.S. numbers will start to look more like Europe's 15% numbers or, or China's numbers, which, which are even higher. Of course, that's a moving target. Europe, Europe is, you know, their, their adoption is, will be higher then as well. But, but I think 2020, 2025 will, will be the, the magic year there. There's also the issue of availability. You know, as I spoke of before, Lots of the OEMs have had lots of difficulties in terms of ramping their production of EVs. So if you as a consumer went to your local dealership, you tried to order one of these things, it was really hard to get. By the time we get out to 24 and 25, these issues should be largely resolved. If we look at Rivian, for example, 
Rivian is the U.S. truck and SUV EV maker. Last year, they were plagued with production disappointment, scaling disappointment at their factories. This year, they're finally impressing investors and impressing onlookers with where their production is. I think you'll start to see this roll out across the industry. And that increased production means increased availability, means lower pricing, and that, that's good for consumers. The other thing that's interesting is that you, you'll, most of the EV makers are on their, shall we say, version 1.0 of their, of their EV. Most of these cars are very expensive. Uh, Rivian's pickup truck is $70,000. Their SUV is $80,000. It's called the r -Rot. When we get out to 2025, they will be on their, let's call it 2.0 vehicle, which will be a lot cheaper. So this will be like how Tesla started out with their Model S, their Model X. These were eighty dollars to $100,000 cars. When they launched their Model 3 and Model Y, it's when they the mass adoption and it's when their units went over a million. When Rivian launches their R2, which would be a fifty dollars to $60,000 SUV and truck, I think then you'll start to see mass adoption and you'll start to see those numbers take off. So last question on EVs, obviously consumer range anxiety has been a problem, at least historically with the adoption. And do you think that EV charging is still an impediment? Because we've seen a lot of headlines recently from large manufacturers adopting the Tesla starting Tesla's charging standard, which will hopefully help with the network effects there. Sure. I think one of the most exciting things occurring in EV charging are the funds that come from Biden's infrastructure plan and come from the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. Those programs committed $7.5 billion to EV charging. So over the next few years, we will see a large ramp up in terms of EV charging stations. So this will relieve customers' fears of range anxiety and where do I charge my, my new EV. Historically, the biggest, besides Tesla, the biggest firm in terms of EV charging has been Electrify America. They have had a lot of disappointments in terms of reliability of their, of their network, although these things are improving. Uh, so again, as we go out into 2024, 2025, the build-out of the network will be much more progressed than, than where it is. And then we should see an improvement in EV charging quality as well from players like, like Electric America. The Tesla news is interesting uh, because Tesla has the most reliable charging network. And the fact that it's opening up to all cars, lots of OEMs are, are adopting the Tesla standard. It includes Ford, it includes GM, it includes Rivian and other OEMs. Uh, this just means that there, there are more charging options for customers. And so again, that, that, should, that should be good for, for EV adoption. The final thing I'll say on this topic is just that the range of an EV is also increasing. A couple of years ago, the average EV had a range of 200 miles, 250 miles. That should be more like 300, 350 miles over the next year to 24 months. So this means that you just, the customer doesn't need to charge as much. So that should help adoption as well. Mm -hmm. So let's switch gears, pun intended, from <laughs> EVs to energy transition. What is exciting in 2023 on the energy transition front? 
I think the most exciting factor in energy transition is batteries or energy storage. One of the criticisms of renewable energy has been that it's intermittent. So if you look at wind energy, the wind is not blowing all the time. So how do you get power when it's not windy? And then on the solar side, it's, you know, the sun's only shining for half of the day. So what do you do for the other half of the day? Energy storage and industrial-sized batteries are changing the game here uh, because it allows a utility or a household to shift their power usage. So when the wind is blowing, the battery's charging. When the wind isn't blowing, the battery can discharge and supply a factory or a household or a commercial business. This is pretty exciting. It's changing the game. If you look at industry estimates, batteries were it's a $50 billion business back in 2020. It's $160 billion today. So it's tripled over the last three years. So that I think that's the most exciting thing in energy trans transition now. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, and I have to go back to the IRA, there are production subsidies for battery production within the United States. And the subsidies are so extensive that it has changed the calculus of where battery companies, where auto OEMs are placing their battery factories. Historically, the leaders of battery production have all been in Asia. It's firms Sonic, it's LG Chem, it's Samsung. But with the advent of the IRA, it means that producing batteries in the United States becomes actually more cost-effective than doing so in Asia. There, there are some reports that say that with all these subsidies, it's actually 15% cheaper uh, to do industrial-scale battery manufacturing in the U.S. versus Asia. So this has changed the, the whole calculus of, of manufacturing in this country. And so, so that's pretty interesting. Europe noticed this and they came up with their own policies to get more battery production within Europe. So it doesn't all flow out of Asia and, and, and to, the, to the U.S. There's a program called CRMA. There's a program called NZIA. And all these things are subsidizing battery capacity in Europe. So I, I'd say that's, that's the most thing right now mm -hmm. energy transition mm -hmm. so beyond energy storage dropping in cost and and driving adoption of renewable sources is there anything else in the r&d pipeline that gets you excited sure i think the most exciting thing i've read recently is the development of offshore solar and this is interesting because if you think of other methods of energy production they all have an offshore version we all know about offshore drilling for oil and gas. We all know about offshore wind for wind turbines. But offshore solar is an interesting development. Right now, there's a project in Asia. It's a, a JV between a, a Chinese power developer and a Norwegian power developer. And they're doing 11 gigawatts off coast in Asia. And uh, it looks pretty compelling. It's an interesting development. One of the issues with solar is getting the permits for these large land plots that are required for a solar farm. And the thought is, is that if this moves offshore, the permitting will be lots of, lot, lot easier than, than it is right now. 
One of the issues with, with offshore solar is the fact that it's quite corrosive dealing with the salt water and the salt air, but it's interesting. So I'd say watch this space. Mm -hmm. So what about politics and energy transition? So do you feel that in the US we're going to see a uh, kind of a blue state, the red state divide in the energy transition space? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And, and I, I have to answer that question in two ways. I, I think in rhetoric, yes. I think that blue states will like to tout how they are converting over to renewable energy. I think red states would, would probably prefer to, to support the, the fossil fuel industry, given the political contributions that, that they make. But if you look at the underlying trends, I think both red states and blue states are, are going towards renewables. One reason is just cost. We talked earlier about how in the early 2000s, renewable energy required subsidies to be competitive with fossil fuels. That's no longer the case. If you look now in terms of build and install cost per kilowatt, if you look at solar energy, it's about $1,300 per kilowatt. If you look at wind, it's about $1,700 per kilowatt. If you look at coal, it's $4,000 per kilowatt. So solar and wind are much less expensive than using coal. And I think whether you're a red state or you're a blue state, you just look at the numbers and, and you think it's just more effective to go this way. It's funny, if you look at Texas, which, which is, you know, a, a red state, that Republican governor right now, he had 10 gigawatts of power that were, that was offline due to the recent heat issues that they're having there. And this is due to failures at coal plants, failure at nuclear plants, but solar energy and wind energy was picking up the slack and it was making things better for residents there. Solar is booming in Texas. Uh, it's going to be the second largest solar market in the U.S. It's projected to outpace California by around 2030 or so. So that, 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 that's really interesting. And then in Florida, we're seeing similar issues. The big utilities there are, are planning to phase out their, their coal generation by 2028 or so. And there's a big move to, to have place with renewables. So yeah, I, I think the adoption in red states will, will be big as well. So shifting gears again. More, from... more gears, more gear shifting. <laughs> From the new economy and discussing more conventional industries like construction, building materials, and so on. So at the beginning of the year, the expectations were low because rates were increasing. What are you seeing in construction and building materials? Yeah, sure. It looks like residential construction in terms of new homes built exceeds expectations. It continues to exceed expectations, even though interest rates are are quite high. It looks like prospective buyer traffic. There are the various indices that, that track these numbers. We're at the highest numbers we've seen in, in 2023. So that's pretty bullish in terms of what happens next for, for home builders. In terms of pricing incentives that home builders are having to use to attract buyers, it used to be around 25% of deals were required incentives. And that, that fell to 22% in July. So, so that's also pr pretty exciting for home builders. And so that, that, that looks pretty strong. There continues to be a cloud over the commercial sector, especially office. So that's where everyone's watching to see what happens next. Mm -hmm. Xavier, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Nick.
Today we spoke with Xavier Smith, Director of Research Energy and Industrials at AlphaSense's Expert Insight Solution. We covered EVs, we covered energy transition, energy storage, as well as construction and interest rates. This was another episode of Signals by AlphaSense. My name is Nick Mazing, and you can find us on all the major platforms. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. This was another episode of Signals by AlphaSense. Keep in mind that all views presented here are the views of the guests and hosts and do not represent the views of their employers or of AlphaSense. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investing, tax, legal, or medical advice. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review and subscribe for more.